This is Work the Case, a Criminal Minds legal podcast. I mean, I think it's fair to say this is our favorite show. Yes, unfortunately for me, because it is a very bad show. <laughs> no, it's it's awful. Um, we have been watching it for, I think this August was our 10-year anniversary of watching this show. I think longer. This was like my mom and I's like bonding show when I was like eight when it first came out. Well, it's our 10 years of watching it together. Yes, as like a squad, yes. Yeah, you know, I measure your life by my impact on it, of course. Which is fair, because that's pretty much all my life has become now. Okay, so, um, introductions, I guess. Um, so, Lee. I'm Hope. And, uh, together we've been watching the show for about ten years. Uh, Hope a little longer, me a little less, but, um, we are not just dedicated Criminal Minds fans. Um, I have a degree in broadcast journalism, and I've worked in that industry for almost two years now. And I am a third year law student. I graduate in about a semester and a half, (laughs) um, God fucking willing. (laughs) And I have worked both for the Department of Justice, so on the prosecution side for the federal government, and then for state public defenders in the South. Yes, so uh, we are... I think about as qualified as you can be to talk about an awful cop show. Yeah. Um, We could use a psychologist, I think, to really round this out, because I know enough about psychology to know that what they're saying is, like, incorrect, but I I don't know enough to be like, wow, here's exactly why that's incorrect. So I don't know... A lot, but um, based on the fact that you are a law student and I have a 9-to-5 job, um, I have been doing the clinical research and I can't do a lot, but I can do enough to know that what they're saying is bullshit. (laughs) That's pretty much my motto. Okay, so for this first episode, we are talking about episode one, which is called Extreme Aggressor. It is the most pilot (laughs) episode for a TV show I've ever seen. Uh, we can get into that in a bit, but uh, our terms that we're going to be using a lot in this episode is, um, so there's one that I earned from looking into police misconduct, and the term is lawful but awful, um, which is a special term used for when something is not illegal, but it does suck. Yeah, it shouldn't It shouldn't be illegal, but you know, um, <laughs> we just haven't gotten around to banning it yet, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, for this episode in particular, we are also looking slightly into warrants. Um, it's kind of a bit of a thing here, but uh, we're also going to be talking about that later on. Um, and then a fun one for this episode is the difference between a power assertive and an anger excitation rapist. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later, but uh, why don't we start with the plot synopsis? I was going to say, or do we want to start going over, like, the criminal minds, like, what is it, the profiling, its use in courts and everything else? We can, uh, yeah, we can actually go into that first. So, uh, Criminal Minds, as everybody listening to this knows, is a show in which a team of experts will take in crime scenes and other forms of information to develop a profile of a you know, what they would call an unsub, which could stand for a large variety of crimes. Unsub just stands for unknown subject. And a profile will help guide police or other law enforcement agencies in finding the unsub. Um, But you can tell us a little bit more about how that's used in a court setting. Yeah, so the real-life term for this is criminal investigative analysis, or CIA, which was super confusing Googling this. Um, Because I kept seeing CIA pop up everywhere, and I was like, that's not what I'm looking up. Um, But it was, fun fact. So, pretty much in the use in the court setting is actually a topic of some debate in the legal field. It also differs from court to court. So, the way that our court system works is we have both federal courts and state courts, and then each of those levels have different jurisdictions. And so not only can each federal jurisdiction have a different interpretation on this, but each state one can as well. And so it, like, it, right, you get different mileage depending on where you are. 
So for FBI investigating, a lot of these would be... Federal crimes. Would they be conducted in yes, federal Yes, if the court? FBI is helping, almost always, that means it's a federal crime. Um, if it's a state crime, like, mm-hmm. local police officers, or not officers, the um, departments can use, like, FBI mm-hmm. resources. But if you have FBI agents, like, on the ground investigating, usually it is a federal crime. And the, the definition for a federal crime versus a, you know, a state crime... That's a pretty loose definition sometimes. Yeah. Um, I like to joke that the only difference is a federal crime is what the federal government wants it to be or when it wants it to be. Um, Because basically, for it to be a federal crime, it must violate either a federal statute, so something Congress passes, or involve interstate commerce in the world's loosest way possible. So, like, you know, if you kill somebody in Washington State and leave their body in Oregon, that's interstate commerce? So it doesn't have to be commerce necessarily, right? But you're killing them and dumping them across state lines. Federal government comes in because that's when, like, one state or the other wouldn't necessarily be, like, prosecuting. Because you're doing crime in both states. So the federal government will cut out the middleman and just do it. Yeah, when you cross state lines, or like I said, commerce, basically that means, like, if you, ha- if you use, like, a gun that was purchased out of state, Mm-hmm. Even if you didn't purchase it, if it was just manufactured in a different state and you somehow steal it, come across it, whatever, and use that in a robbery, they can say, well, that robbery used interstate commerce, so the federal government can step in now if they want to, which they usually don't unless, like I said, they're just feeling it that day, I guess. Okay, love that. Okay, so in, in federal court cases, how is a profile used? So in federal court cases... There's kind of two ways that you can get people in. So they would have to be doing what's called expert testimony. And expert testimony has certain standards defined through case law, et cetera, et cetera. But the one that's mostly used in federal courts is what's called the, called the Dobert standard or Daubert standard. Mm-hmm. It depends which professor is talking to me at the moment. <laughs> and that comes from Dobert v. Merrill Doe Pharm- Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, which is a Supreme Court case. And pretty much this just lays out that there has to be, it's five different factors. So you have one, if the theory or technique has been tested or can be tested. Two, whether it has been subjected to peer review and publication. Three, it has a known or potential error rate. Four, the existence and maintenance of standards um, controlling its operation are known. And five, whether it has attracted widespread acceptance within a relevant scientific community. So this would be like a, a forensic bite, uh, like someone that looks into bite marks and determines like, oh, well, this bite mark clearly means that this person bit this corpse and, you know, that is identifiable. You can test that, be, like you can test that in the field. You can have that be peer reviewed by science. You can see that and it can be determined as acceptable testimony or unacceptable testimony based Somewhat on how the judge feels and also on the statute and other precedent, right? Yeah. That's why, like, say, lie detector tests aren't used in court because we can Mm -hmm. prove that their, like, potential error rate is that they're inaccurate, right? They've been tested. Okay. Yeah. So. So there is a second Supreme Court case called Kumo Tire Company Limited v. Carmichael, which is for social sciences and not, like, hard sciences. So that's what Dobert is used for, like what we are talking about, like bite marks, um, anything scientific. Kumo is used for social sciences, like history, which in the, like, relevant field for that is that the knowledge has to be specialized, relevant to the task at hand, and rest on a reliable foundation, which is usually ruled to be some sort of peer review or publication. So it's pretty similar to Dobert, but you don't need as much testing. So for profiling, that's something that, because there is a wing of the FBI devoted to that, it's something that can be peer-reviewed, it's something that can be tested for error rates, and it can, you know, it fits a lot of the qualities of Dubert, so is that why it's accepted in court? Well, it's not accepted in court. I was going to get to that, but those would be the two ways you try and get it into court. 
Yes. So you'd either get profiling accepted into a court by saying that it's an acceptable science, so Dilbert test, or it's a social science, the other. So again, this depends on like what jurisdiction you're in, etc. But there was a survey taken of various actual people who use um, criminal investigative analysis as well as prosecutors. And 87% said that they don't believe it should be used, and it's generally not used, except in very specific ways in the courtroom. This is because of a bunch of different things. So not only does it have issues passing Dobert, because um, like a lot of the theories has been, a lot of the theory has been questioned, a lot of the error rates have been questioned, which we can get into that later. But there's also a rule against using what's called character evidence in the courtroom, which is pretty much... The actual legal definition is you can't use prior action to prove conformity therewith, which basically means you can't say, well, this guy usually speeds, he has 200 speeding tickets, so he was probably running that red light because he was going too fast. You can't do that. And then it is also more prejudicial than probative, generally speaking, so evidence to be used, even if it is admissible evidence, if it is going to prejudice the jury more than it's going to like actually prove something. So if it's going like, this is where like pictures of bodies kind of get like a really contested in court because mm. the defense attorney is like, listen, we know that what the body looks like. We don't want to see like the blown up picture of say the dead two year old that's in the picture. The prosecution is going to zoom in on that dead two year old and put them as close to the jury's faces as possible. That yeah. would be more prejudicial and probative, right? Because you're not proving anything new. They've mm-hmm. already seen the picture. You're just trying to get them to feel really shitty about this kid, right? So that's another reason that criminal fi- profiling usually doesn't get in. As, like, the criminal mind standard, here's 15 reasons why we believe this guy is the killer. Where it's like, we, we see this crime scene, so we know he drives a navy blue Dodge Durango, and now he's in jail forever. Yeah. Now, it can be used, like, you could get, say, Dr. Reed on the stand to explain, like, what staging is. You could get them to explain, like, specialized information they were using. So, like, psychology terms or, mm-hmm. um, like, general scientific principles, like I said, like, body staging or the process that they used. Or my favorite, which is fetishes and paraphilias. You could get him to explain those. Exactly. But you wouldn't be able to test about, testify about it in, like, relation to the defendant. So you could testify in a vacuum and maybe try to backdoor their testimony through, say, like, a police officer who is actually, do, like, going, like, step by step. But you can't get the profiler to testify about, like, well, here's exactly why we think they're the rapist murderer. Like, you, um, they would have to be just in a vacuum giving definitions, more or less. Okay. So, uh... Now that we know that this isn't necessarily um, something that would be accepted in court, we do know it's sometimes used in law enforcement as a way to, uh, you know, help law enforcement narrow down suspect lists. But uh, when it comes to solving a crime, law enforcement generally have to go to court standards because they want to get a conviction at the end of the day. And to get a conviction, you need to do things that fall within court standards yeah unfortunately uh you have to follow the law um yeah unfortunately for them you can use this for example to get a warrant because the you don't have to use court admissible evidence to get warrants you can just come up to the judge and say hey these are the vibes we're getting here's the reason it has to be probable cause so it has to be more likely than not but the standard for that is pretty low Mm -hmm. um we're gonna get into warrants and stuff later so i can talk more about it then but you can use this kind of evidence to get a warrant, which at least helps the investigation. Okay, so with that, I think we can get into the summary of the episode. So uh, Criminal Minds, uh, the first episode, Extreme Aggressor. So uh, the team is sent to Seattle to work on a case where an unknown subject known in the media as the Seattle Strangler is killing young women, performing sexual assaults on them, but they are very clear to specifically say that it is not penetrative sexual assault. That gets into a definition of pinkerism, which I will explain in a moment. 
but uh, these women are strangled and then dumped in public areas near trash. So through their investigation, they find a suspect by the name of Richard Slesman who ticks a few of their boxes on their profile, but doesn't tick all of them. He drives the type of car that they suspect that he would, uh, but he is not exactly the kind of person you'd assume to be a very successful serial killer. So while investigating further, they find that while Slesman was incarcerated, his prison guard, Tim Vogel, would watch over him. They formed a relationship in which they were open about their sexual deviances, but also their desire to kill women. They formed a partnership in which Tim Vogel was the dominant partner and Slesman was the submissive partner. They would kidnap women together, murder them, sexually assault them, then dump their bodies. Uh, and that explains some of the gaps in their profile. But the end, with the help of Slesman, they're able to find where Vogel is keeping the most recent victim. And after Gideon antagonized him. He is shot, which gives Greenway permission to shoot Tim Vogel, and he is killed. So this is a lot. <laughs> yes, for sure. So um, let's we can start with the initial profile. So this initial profile, which by the way, delivered by Gideon, despite the rest of the team saying it's too early, um, is that they're looking for a white male, late twenties, organized, watches the news, very clean. But he has a prior record. He is impotent. He is paranoid. Uh, they've already interviewed him. He's very interested in law enforcement. And he is suffering from peakerism, which... Um, so, like, how much do you know about paraphilia? Ooh, great question. Um, a little bit, but not enough to know what peakerism is. So, there are different ways that people can be sexually attracted to something that's outside of the norm. So, if you have a kink or a fetish... That's generally seen as atypical sexual behavior, but acceptable within the bounds of society. So, you know, people that are into the BDSM scene, that's seen as a fetish or a kink, but it's not seen as a paraphilia. Paraphilia is very specifically defined in the DSM-5 as uh, a sexual attraction to either someone who cannot fully legally consent. So that would be either a child, a person who is mentally unable to consent fully or uh an animal um or it is a sexual attraction that requires harm to oneself or others uh usually without their consent so two willing adults participating in you know sexual intercourse involving a knife uh if they're both consenting it is not actively harmful and they're not like stabbing each other then that's that would be a fetish or a kink uh, if it is peakerism, which is defined as a sexual attraction to piercing the skin, so let's say, you know, two people are having sex, a guy pulls out a knife and stabs his partner, that would be a paraphilia because, number one, it's not consented to, number two, it's dangerous, number three, involves harm without consent. So peakerism specifically is about uh, stabbing, pricking, or otherwise sticking something into flesh. It is a uncommon sexual uh, deviance, um, which they don't really call them sexual deviance. They would call them atypical sexual behavior or a paraphilia, which is outside of the standard norms and actively harmful. So peakerism is often something that it's mostly presented in men, and uh, it is kind of debated widely in the psychology world because some people believe that, like, you know, peakerism, the needle is clearly a stand-in for a penis, and it's about penetration, uh, but there's some arguments about that, as there is in many sexual psychology fields. <laughs> um, so it's usually something that would define impotence, because if you are replacing the object used to penetrate, that's usually a sign that you yourself are incapable of penetrating, or you lack the the equipment to penetrate yeah um which i think getting later on uh basically says you have a small dick so <laughs> um so this profile of you know a white man late 20s is not entirely incorrect it just is describing two people as one person and that is why it fails 
Yeah, that's why, like, later in the episode, they have, like, the stereotypical someone says something random, like, as an aside. Mm-hmm. And Gideon's like, wait a second. I just had an epiphany. Yeah. It's two people. <laughs> um, so, I think specifically what causes that moment is they are investigating Slesman. So, uh, L. Greenway is with the Seattle Police Department, and she identifies Slesman as a person of interest. He has a prior record, um, and this is kind of where I can get into power assertive versus anger excitation rapist. So uh, he is an anger excitation rapist. Now, anger excitation rapists are primarily men. Um, A lot of these criminal definitions are going to mostly fall on men, not because men are more predisposed to crime, but because men are most likely to be the ones that are, like, investigated heavily. Um, More likely to be arrested. They're most likely to be arrested, they're most likely to be prosecuted, they're more likely to be studied. Uh, women who commit crime are often seen more as a spectacle rather than, why did he do it? They're, it's like, oh my god, it's a lady that did a crime. Um, so these definitions, I'm going to say mostly men, and when I say that, that was, is with the acknowledgement that women can also be criminals. Hashtag feminism. Yeah, that's also a pretty big hole in a lot of their research, as they mention, especially in the first episode, like, we've done hundreds of interviews and hundreds of this, and, like, we, this is, like, a scientific thing that we know because we have done all this research. Leaving out the fact that... by the way, we talked to one lady. Yeah, I was gonna say, leaving out the fact that, like, they at least spoke to maybe 85 or 90% men, and so, most likely white men, too. And so mm-hmm. probably left out, like, a good chunk of women and people of color and so just did not investigate how those people commit crimes at all. And totally doesn't bias their outlook on anything since they start out assuming the unsub is a male every episode. And it's like a shock when it's a woman. And, you know, white American men are predisposed to a certain amount of attributes that's because of societal conditioning that's not to say that every white american man is a rapist or all of them are selfish or ego driven but there is a way that society kind of impacts how people are raised and for white american men you know it is a lot of the time ego driven it is a lot of the time individualistic um so when we're interviewing mostly white men we're going to get biases. So back to the definition of anger excitation rapist. So an anger excitation rapist is basically a person that rapes because they're mad. Um, It's an unpredictable kind of like rage focused. Uh, They are the kind of rapists that will humiliate women. They're most likely the ones that are going to be staging bodies if they turn out to be killers. They're most likely going to be the ones that are, you know, uh, degrading women during sexual assault. Uh, they are conflict focused and these are the kind of rapists that usually will use like a blitz attack rather than drugging them. Um, they're not, it's not uncommon for these people to use alcohol or drugs, but it's uh, more likely to use physical violence or the threat of physical violence to control victims. So the difference between an anger excitation rapist and a power assertive rapist is a power assertive rapist is, um, someone that mostly seizes the opportunity where an anger excitation rapist has a buildup of emotion, a power assertive rapist is somebody that kind of finds a random chance to display that they are powerful and they will use that. Um, they are, there's a lot of similarities between these two types of uh, rapists. A lot of the time they use degrading language, um, but where a power assertive rapist is more likely to uh, use um basically psychological manipulation on the victim an anger excitation rapist will most likely use physical uh manipulation um so slesman is i believe an anger excitation rapist uh that is his past background uh he is tech savvy uh, an extreme aggressor read notes when he goes upstairs and finds his go board um He's uh, he's in his late 20s, and he is a white male, so they got that right. Um, but he is also submissive in his relationship with Tim Vogel. So this is kind of interesting to me because uh, an anger excitation rapist as a submissive partner kind of displays a hatred towards women, but a, uh, he's very submissive to men. So that kind of 
that's kind of typical in um like rapist kind of mentality of like women are dirty and therefore owe me sex but men are respectable um yeah little bitch boys basically essentially um so he completes half of the profile tim vogel is the second part he's in his early 30s he's also a white man um he is the organized partner he is masculine obsessed he he ha- he wants people to see him as a man more than anything else in the world he is a cop that kills um and he is the one that has impotence and peakerism so uh this episode it clearly draws inspiration from the hillside stranglers um which were a pair of cousins in california that were killing women that they picked up along the freeway um it also draws off of William Hurens, which was the, he's the lipstick killer. That was his fun name. He killed from uh, June 1945 to possibly 1947. Uh, some crimes were later attributed to them. He did recant later. Um, in this fun show, they like to say that Gideon actually interviewed him. Yes, like, they will just name drop, like, serial killers that this fictional character apparently just, like, spoke to casually. Yeah, it's like, Gideon, he interviewed Jeffrey Dahmer, like, eight times. And it's like, whoa, 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 why isn't that the show? Yeah. Um, like, hey, this is kind of an important factoid that you're just, like, inserting in reality here. The the reference that they make to William Hirons, it happens early in the episode, uh, her computer has a virus on it, and that virus pops up a note, and that note says, for heaven's sakes, catch me before I kill more, I cannot control myself that uh that's a note that william hirons wrote above his uh first i think it's his first victim in lipstick on her wall he wrote that exact thing and um that is kind of a specific call out to gideon um who he also has like he has a newspaper article he has his thesis like he this guy's gideon obsessed (laughs) yes which is also a theme. Yeah. Um, every serial killer loves one member of this very secretive FBI team that nobody knows about. <laughs> yes. And we can go over the members, too. I mean, I'm assuming people watching th- or listening to this mm-hmm. are going to have, like, a basic idea of what the fuck Criminal Minds is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but the, t- the roster does change pretty often, so I don't know if we want to go over, like, who's in each season. Yeah, we can go over that. I mean... Uh, Leader of the team is, of course, Aaron Hotchner. He is a former prosecutor, now turned FBI unit chief. Um, the most senior member of the team would be uh, Gideon. Um, he was there for the founding of the, I think it was called the BSU back then. Uh, yeah, and now it's the BAU. Uh-huh. Our favorite, uh, Dr. Spencer Reed. Um, yes, he, I have a lot of opinions on Reed, namely that he's perfect in every way. Uh, we can do a haircut check every couple of episodes. Right now, he looks like yes. an elf. Um, <laughs> he's, uh, uh, quote unquote, their expert on everything. Um, yeah, because he's a king. Also on the team, is rounding out the team really at this point, is uh, Derek Morgan. He is a former ATF specialist. He is an expert on obsessive crimes. Um, and he's perfect in every way. Yeah, he's also just physically perfect. He's a fucking specimen. <laughs> uh, joining them on this case and in future episodes will be Elle Greenway, who is a... She's from the Seattle Police Department, and she's an expert on sexually motivated crimes. Uh, on the team, but not really mentioned heavily in this episode, is uh, Penelope Garcia, their technical analyst. She will go through, I think, the one of the biggest changes post-pilot. <laughs> Yes. And uh, we don't meet JJ yet, but she is next episode, so that will be fun for me. So um, I was going to say, that will be Lee's whole bag, is whatever the fuck JJ is doing at any given time. Because she just says things. <laughs> she just vibes. Hodge is like, hey, we need you to like lie to the public for no reason at all. And she's like, all right, I already did, so who gives a shit? <laughs> okay, so um, let's get into your part of the episode, which is all of the legal concerns. So... First, yes. my first question is, so Gideon is off his shit this entire episode. He's had, yeah. he, um, recently, like, this episode is his first return from mental health leave following, uh, 
what we learn later is a bombing in Boston that led to the deaths of six agents. Yeah, and we later find out he, like, blames himself for this for various reasons that we'll discuss when that, like, episode comes Mm -hmm. up. But essentially, like, it is a plot point in this, not just this episode, but, like, a big part of this episode specifically, is that he is apparently, everybody is expecting him to just break the fuck down at any second. Like, the head of the BAU comes up to Hotch and is like, we need you to be behind this guy, no less than three inches away from him at any given time, and, like, call us immediately. Derek is like, this fucking man... Like, no, every person is like, he's going to kill me. Yeah, like, there's, like, five times Derek Morgan is like, hey, this man has, oh, like, he's like, yeah, that's a PTSD symptom. Yeah, he's about to have a nervous breakdown. Yeah, he's, like, mentally fucked. And it's like, cool. That's totally not something, like, and this is something we can also get into is we will assume, like, I will not make, like, court predictions. So I'm not going to sit here and say, like, well, they would win the case because this, this, and this. Because cases and, like, trials are wild as shit. And I don't have, like, litigation experience personally yet, so I'm not gonna, like, get all up in that. But I will say, like, I will note things when it's like, we will assume that if we put Derek Morgan on the stand in front of us and said, did you have confidence in Gideon that he wouldn't just, like, lie or be human and, like, forget exactly what he said three years when this case is actually at trial? Because most of these are going to be death penalty or capital cases, like when it's murders. So those cases take several years to get to trial. So he's not going to remember exactly what he said. But since this is a TV show and Mm. we can do what we want, I will assume that if you put him on the stand and you said, Derek Morgan, special agent Derek Morgan, do you, did you have like confidence in Gideon's responsibility or, you know, mental health? He would say, no, here's the exact symptoms or whatever. Like... He'd be, he'd be like, fuck no, that guy's insane. Yeah. He'd be like, here's exactly what I said, word for word, verbatim, at minute eight of the episode. <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, no, like, the entire episode, uh, Gideon is walking around, like, on the verge of either a panic attack or a dissociative episode. Um, so, in terms of reliability, he's not a very reliable expert witness yeah not great especially because like you mentioned earlier like he gives a profile way too early which is also a theme in these episodes like they'll be tossing around the profile and have no idea what the fuck is going on and then Gideon mm-hmm. will like slam his hands on the table and be like I've got it we're giving it now and everybody in the room is like what the fuck are you talking about everyone's like we're still eating lunch yeah they're like hey we're in the middle of like discussing what the profile even is and he's like no I'm giving it Um, so that also, so not only is he, like, in the middle of a breakdown, not only is he giving unreliable information to the police based on that possible mental breakdown, but he's giving his scientific opinion when a room full of people also trained in this field and also with experience are saying this isn't ready, it's not going to be accurate. Which, again, we will assume that they would say this on the stand, which most likely they wouldn't in real life, but we will be... This is a TV show. We do what we want. And I don't want to, like, get into the weeds on testimony. So we will assume that they would say, no, it's too early. Like, we didn't agree, which completely ruins any of his credibility when make it, like, useless. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, this wouldn't be something that they can, like, use in court anyway. But it does mean that, like, if you're attacking, like, what the cops did, you can start attacking, Mm -hmm. like, the actual evidence that they used. So here's my question. So we know that Gideon is unreliable at this point. If we have people testifying to the fact that he is unreliable, that changes the course of what we can reasonably bring into court as evidence, right? Because it's Gideon's profile that leads to the arrest of Robert Slussman. Robert Slussman leads to everything else. So, like, if if Derek Morgan... SSA Derek Morgan goes into court and says, no, that man is crazy. How does that change the rest of the court case? Yeah, so that would be a lot of strategic stuff on both sides. Um, So one of the rules that we'll also get into later is, like, you can have what's called the tree of the poisonous fruit. So here is something that the police did that was illegal or did something to quote-unquote poison the case. And so fruit from that is usually also considered poison. So you search something without a warrant you can't use the weed that you find on the table, right? That is poisonous fruit. Mm -hmm. 
that doesn't necessarily apply to something that was just unreliable. That's something for the jury to decide. So the jury will say, you know, whether or not Gideon, they found his testimony reliable or whether they thought his evidence was reliable. That's not something that, like, the judge will rule on. But generally speaking, people mm -hmm. are not considered poisonous fruits. So they would have, like, this wouldn't have affected finding them. This wouldn't have affected, like, them being in the courtroom. It would just affect their actual case and what they presented to the jury. So the defense would be hounding on this, right? Like, they would the defense attorneys would not shut the fuck up about Gideon. That would be the name that you hear in the case because you wouldn't have found anything without Gideon. But it would probably be more productive as well to focus on the actual evidence because you can attack and say, well, this like police investigation was super shoddy. Look at how they found him. But if you have him holding her with a gun to her head saying, I'm the rapist, I'm the rapist, and that's all admissible, like, you're gonna plea. <laughs> so I guess we're not, I guess we're not... We're not doing a lot for the case of Vogel because he's dead. But um, Slesman over here, they would be they would be putting Gideon on a on a pike and being like, "Look at him, crazy man." Yeah, they'd be like, "Look how crazy!" Like, look at the investigation that led to this. Look how awful it is. But that being said, he also does admit to doing it and like knew where she was, mm -hmm. and all of that was admissible, as we will get to later. And so, like, even with all of that super shitty stuff that the cops went into, none of that was illegal. And while it might sway a jury, like, there's no certainty to that. And so, like, I can easily picture a an attorney going, listen, you've got to plea this. Like, okay. if we put you in front of a jury, they're probably going to say the investigation was shoddy, but we have actual evidence you did it anyway. Mm -hmm. So, like, they're going to convict you, right? Mm -hmm. Especially most juries are already pretty conviction-ready anyway. Especially um, for a capital case like this would be. Yes. I mean, it's multiple murders. Because multiple murders. <laughs> yeah, it would depend on the state statute, but, like, it would pro most likely be a capital case. So, for various reasons, capital juries are much more likely to convict you and much more likely to sentence you to death. We can get into that later as well, but essentially... Mm -hmm. I would suggest a plea bargain because you can have super shaky evidence on one hand, but if you have him saying, this is what I did, I confessed, and they play that in the courtroom, which they have every right to. Yes. Like, I would plea, maybe. I would consider it. <laughs> Especially if they offer you life in prison and not trying you for death. So, uh, let's go back for a moment to Fruit from the Poison Tree and talk about this. Uh, after they leave the prison, they go to pull over who they think is tim vogel it is very much not yes um so they kind of pull him over with no real reason he doesn't commit any traffic violations no moving violations um he's not speeding he's driving actually they they remark he's driving very carefully and they pull him over drag him out of the car or start screaming at him so is this lawful but awful territory or is this like illegal this would most likely be illegal. So this is where I start talking about the Fourth Amendment and tie myself in knots because there's a lot of, like, caveats to the Fourth Amendment. Like, it's a whole class we have to take. It's it's a thing. But generally speaking, Fourth Amendment, that covers searches and seizures. So searches are things you need a warrant for, searching your car, searching your house, tracking you, anything with information, right? A seizure is an arrest. An arrest is usually defined by if you thought that you could leave or not and what... That's usually a balancing test on, like, could you have reasonably thought you would leave? Would a normal person think that they could leave this situation? So, in the part when he's, like, handcuffed to the table in the kitchen... That's an arrest. That's an arrest. If they had, like, if there is a police officer holding you on the ground with their knee in your back, I would call that an arrest because you wouldn't particularly feel safe leaving at that point. So, we can go through, like, chronologically, but generally speaking, you just have to think that you can't leave. And... This is also something that police officers try and get around a lot as well. Here's the thing. Cops don't know what the law is. And I mean that in, like, both a general ACAB way, but also in, like, they do not know. The only thing they know about the specific law, because they don't get trained on it, is, like, to put, like, furtive movements in their report. Because the prosecutors tell them to do that. And I mean, let's be fair. To be a cop, in most places, you don't need too much of an advanced degree. I think it's an associate degree is the general standard. You don't need a law degree. I was going to say, in Ohio, you just need a high school degree. Police training mm -hmm. usually doesn't cover, like, the actual law. So, like, 
most police know like to read you your rights and like the general stuff like I said and they know what words to put in their reports because again the prosecutors will tell them but they don't know like if you came up to an officer and said well what makes an arrest an arrest they might not be able to tell you the like legal standard that will be used in the court. So, uh, or they might just be trying to get around it. So a lot mm -hmm. of officers might have you handcuffed, but then say, well, we told them they were free to leave. So like they were free to leave. It doesn't matter that they are handcuffed. We just told them that it was fine. And like, yeah. And if they leave the handcuffs, we'll just arrest them for stealing things. <laughs> yeah. And there's also like, like I said, so there's a lot of caveats. So like you being pulled over on the side of the road isn't counted as an arrest, even though I personally like wouldn't feel free to leave that situation. Mm -hmm. And that's for like various reasons. Usually it's because it's more public. It's like a quick search. It's, or not a search, but it's like a quick stop. They haven't permanently detained you at that point. So again, I will be speaking mm -hmm. in generalities. None of this is legal advice. Don't sue me for malpractice. I swear to God. If I say something wrong. What's the statement? I'm a lawyer, but not your lawyer. Yeah. Also, like, I feel like in five or 10 years, I will, we will like redo all of these when I actually know what the fuck is going on and be like, so here's what Hope said. That was totally wrong. But generally speaking, if you feel like you can leave, you're probably not under arrest. Yeah. Going back to that scene in the kitchen. So he's in handcuffs at a table with a cop at his shoulder. At that point, he's arrested. This is like a lead up to this is they like they find out they determine he's the killer through various means. L. Greenway walks up and knocks on his door and is like, hey, I'm babysitting for the neighbors. Their door was open. I want someone to come like search it with me. Like, And his grandmother's the one that opens the door and she calls him down to like go with L to like search the house, which mm -hmm. not a legal observation, but if someone did this to me, I would be like, um, do you need a cell phone to call the fucking cops? Like, I'm not going in there <laughs> with you. Like, and I know that's because there's, like, rules about arresting somebody in their home. Well, if they have an arrest warrant and they obviously have a warrant to search the whole house, there isn't. But mm -hmm. I think Elle says at one point, like, we don't arrest, like, it's her personal policy. Like, I don't bring a SWAT team into a house with kids. So we will presume also that they had, like, a warrant to use that house and ignore the plot hole of, like, he apparently didn't know who his neighbor was or that they were gone or, like, anything related to that. We can't focus too hard on that. <laughs> yeah, we can't. We can't do it. It's like how we're saying we're assuming there's a warrant because if there's not, then that's a whole nother rabbit hole, uh -huh. right? So he goes down there. They arrest him in the other house. They do read him his rights. And then they bring him back to his own house and handcuff him to the table for some reason. Like, I don't know. I guess. So the reason that they say is because if we bring him to the station, he's going to lawyer up. And if we tell him, you know, if we start questioning him, he's going to lawyer up. So they, they're like, we're not going to talk to him or like bring him to the station yet. Because if we do, he'll call a lawyer. We can't talk to him anymore because he's been through the system. So he knows how this works. So uh, right now we're just going to leave him handcuffed in the kitchen for a little bit. Which is very funny to me for a couple of reasons. First, he never does lawyer up. No. Second, you don't have to be, like, in the police station to claim your right. Like, especially once you're under arrest, like, if you say, okay, like, you're right. Okay, so, Fifth Amendment right, that's your right to remain silent and not incriminate yourself. You can invoke that. However, once you invoke it, if you, like, start giving them information anyway, unless they, like, forced it out of you, that's, you just gave up your right. Like, you're talking to them anyway. However, your Sixth Amendment right, which mm -hmm. is your right to an attorney, once you invoke that, they can't talk to you. Like, period. And it's usually a, like, a period of, it depends on the jurisdiction, but usually two or three weeks after they cannot talk to you unless you have an attorney. And so, if he'd invoked that on his kitchen table, if he said, I want a lawyer now, yeah, they would have to call a lawyer. Or they would have to let him call a lawyer, or etc. And so, that was really weird, but sure, whatever. He never asked for an attorney that we know of, so like, fuck it. So I guess one of the issues here is that they didn't profile that he would be horny for Gideon, which is why he doesn't call a lawyer. Yeah, like, Gideon finds that he has this whole article on, like, the explosion that killed the whole team, and he's like, I must talk to him, despite the fact that 30 seconds ago we had a deep conversation about why we weren't going to talk to him, and goes and talks to him. Doesn't read him his rights again. So this is where things kind of start getting a little wobbly. Generally speaking, once police arrest you, they read you your rights, but it's also usually recommended they read them to you again as they interrogate you. And usually they will offer you like a piece of paper or record themselves like telling you your rights so that they can prove that you waived them like to the attorneys so that it doesn't turn into a he said, he said situation. 
So let's assume that this conversation is more, it's it's more for Gideon's own curiosity than it is in any type of legal setting, because they take they do shortly afterwards take him to the police station. Yeah, and presumably do everything there. Yeah, presumably Prosecutor Hotch is like, hey, let's do this a little bit more legally from now on. And so, like, and also, like, nothing comes from this interrogation that's useful to their case, except that it just makes Gideon that much closer to a breakdown, I guess. <laughs> And so, it's fine. We learned in this scene that DID doesn't exist. Yeah, that it doesn't, which is funny because it's a huge plot point, like, a season or two in. But, you know, that we'll get to that. Oh, don't worry. We'll, we'll talk about my favorite episodes. <laughs> yes. Favorite two episodes. It's a two-parter, if I, I remember hey, right. I know it's a two-parter. First part's Revelations. Second, no, first part's called Big Game. Second, it's called Revelations. I know of this episode, Hope. <laughs> Absolutely. I also have it written in my notes here at this point that I do love that they just keep dropping like ominous lines and serial killer trivia with like no prompting or no reason. Yeah, which is hilarious. He's over in the corner like, you know, peakerism. (laughs) Yeah, I'm picturing some poor beat cop just like (laughs) trying to search this fucking house and just hearing these three assholes. You know, Jeffrey Dahmer did this, like, but whatever. Um, They go through all of that. Morgan does do a sexual harassment in this episode, which is, like, a theme. I forgot about this. Like, season five Derek Morgan would shoot season one Derek Morgan on sight. Like, season two Derek Morgan would shoot season one Derek Morgan. The only thing I can assume is that the showrunners were trying to do, like, the early 2000s, like, sexual harassment is funny because I'm, like, a funny, cool guy. And I'm super horny all the time, so I'm going to sexually harass women. I think what they were trying to do was, like, a little bit of a will-they-won't-they with Derek and Elle, but, like, those two characters have the least amount of chemistry I've ever seen in two straight people. Yeah, like, there's just none. It's it's off. It's like watching a straight guy hit on a lesbian. Yeah, it's very funny. So he does that, like, in this episode and a few others. I will not get into that, but that is something that she could sue the FBI for, fun fact, for <laughs> under Title Seven. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I want to see that lawsuit because it's just yes. like the, it's the worst trial ever. All of the transcripts are 18 pages long. It's like, well, you know, this serial killer did this to women. Um, <laughs> so uh, going back to the, um, you know, the house search, which we assume is done legally. Uh, everything happens in there. We get some of my favorite quotes, which is, uh, you know, when Derek goes, do or do not, there is no try. And just Gideon looks hopelessly to his pet, Reed, and Reed just goes, Yoda. Hey. <laughs> Fun fact, you know the you know how they find the photos from the boat by getting the password, which is Inter Sandman from Metallica. Yes, which is you know what I can't blame. That's actually a pretty good password. I won't lie. So funnily enough, that the song Inter Sandman would not be on that album. I don't think. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, I think it's I think they, it's the wrong album that's in the computer. <laughs> well, you know, none of us are going to Google that, so it doesn't really matter. I don't think it counts as a plot hole if I'm too lazy to look it up. That's fair. Um, so we assume all the house searches is legal. Um, we assume, you know, we've Mirandized him. He's giving us all of the information. Hotch lies to him every third sentence, but it's legal to lie to people in custody. Also, if you notice that we're making a lot of assumptions, it's because I swear to God, if I have to go down every rabbit hole because they don't feel like showing us Dr. Spencer Reed walking into a courthouse in front of the magistrate asking to search this old lady's house. Yeah. Like, hey, can we arrest this guy? I don't want to watch that. You don't want to watch that. We will assume that the showrunners figured that out and just didn't put it in there okay, and that so it's not like a glaring All of pl- that plot is legal-ish. Um, the guy that gets pulled over, that's illegal, but they don't find anything especially useful during that conversation. So they don't need to submit that to the trial and they can avoid the fact that he was like yelling at this guy who was on the street as i say yeah so we can go into this so first off like they arrest slesman and hotch lies to him like constantly they even come in with like big boxes and hotch is like just fill it with blank paper we don't give a shit and they (laughs) plot these boxes in front of him and they're like this is all the evidence we have on you and your buddy And that is 100% legal. So police can lie to you pretty much however they want. There have been cases where police make, like, photoshopped reports of, like, blood tests that say, like, the suspect was actually the person who did it. 
show it to them and they confess because they're trying to get a deal and that has been ruled like totally fucking chill (laughs) so that's that's where we'd fall into like the lawful but awful yeah and that's for like general reasons but also so to have your confession be valid it has to be three things under miranda which is has to be knowing it has to be intelligent and it has to be voluntary voluntary is usually pretty easy it means that they beat it out of you or like (laughs) coerce you so severely or something which Generally speaking, the courts take it as, like, something physical. Um, or that they were, like, torturing you. So you can't confess under duress. Um, which I've always thought is funny because Miranda is actively talking about police duress. So Miranda, I'm always, okay. So I'm going to get on my soapbox about legal interpretation for a second. Which nobody cares about but me. Which is, the reason Roe versus Wade and other cases like that are such a conservative, like, headache is that they technically take something from the Constitution that is not, like, textually in there, right? They're saying, well, there's a right to privacy, which we can assume Mm -hmm. from various things in the Constitution. Right to privacy gives you right to this. And conservatives hate it because they hate abortion. Nobody really gives a shit that Miranda did the same thing. So Miranda v. Arizona, murder case, they have Miranda Mm -hmm. in custody. I don't think I need to go to the facts too closely because, like, it doesn't really matter for what I'm talking about. And also, I don't remember them. So, but essentially Miranda did a really similar thing, which they were like, listen, we have this random case. They arrested him. He didn't know his rights. He confessed. But we also are really concerned about this new field of psychology coming up where police are like coercing, using psychological tactics to defendants. Fun fact, one of the highest reasons for conviction in the U.S. is because of confessions, which are notoriously unreliable. There's been a lot of studies on why people confess when they're not actually guilty. I don't know why either, but generally speaking, a confession doesn't mean shit. But it's one of the highest reasons for convictions. So Miranda was super concerned about this, the Miranda court, and just went like off the walls and were like, we don't, like, that's why Miranda warnings are a thing. Miranda warnings are nowhere in the constitution. Like they just made them up in the court. And so again, I don't know why conservatives hate this, except that they also like having rights. Um, unless they're women. So that generally, yeah, so this like goes against the heart of Miranda is what I'm like, my really roundabout way of getting to it is like the psychological tactics like go against Miranda, but as courts have been kind of like wearing away at it, generally speaking, the voluntary prong means like they were physically knowing means that you knew your rights. So they read them to you, they had them printed. Did they tell them in your native language or, you know, did you speak English or did you understand what was happening and then intelligent means that you like were basically that you were smart enough to know what's going on right you could understand and apply your rights to your situation so this is like a person's capability to understand like you are being charged with a crime if you are convicted of crime you might go to jail yeah and this applies to like age were they too young um, intellectual deficiencies or disabilities either way uh, mental illness right essentially do you understand what your rights are and do you understand like what's happening and so the thought process behind cops being able to lie to you to this extent is that even if they show you a blood test saying we know it's you confess you should know that you didn't do the crime yeah you should know that you didn't do it and you should know that your rights say that you don't have to say anything so you shouldn't say anything which is ignoring a lot of legal realities but shockingly enough judges have a hard time putting themselves in the shoes of a criminal defendant oh it's weird yeah and so like don't relate or apply like reality a whole lot which you know seems like a hole in our legal system but that's fine okay and then so we get all of this information from Slesman, which while manipulated is legal um and we we find out that he's on the boat so we go to the boat and tim vogel's on the boat and he's about to murder this girl he's got a gun to her head she's screaming and this is when Gideon, at the height of his unwellness for this episode, kind of uh, is, is just sitting there like, shoot me, shoot me, shoot me, get me, come on, kill me. Yeah, do it. Don't you, you have you, a little dick? Shoot you me. You have a little dick, shoot me. And the guy falls for it and shoots him and Elle shoots him dead. Yeah. So this would be going towards police brutality and not necessarily any like legal standard. So this would probably be legal. The legal standard is would a reasonable person, so a reasonable cop, whoever, believe that there was a physical danger. So they can't shoot you when you're running, but if you're pointing a gun at a woman with duct tape over her eyes. And then pointing a gun at a cop. Yeah. Like that would be found. That's a reasonable determination of I'm in danger. Yeah. I would assume 
danger. There's also like a whole bunch of like cases about this obviously, but that's generally the idea is if there's a physical danger to the cop, to another person, debatably to the suspect themselves, that's a little bit more murky, but right, there's a physical danger to someone around them then the cop can shoot you or take physical action or what have you. Yeah, so this is this is a legal shooting, probably. There's also the car. So this kind of has like a lead up. So Elle and Gideon go to the prison to find out like, to try and find Vo- um, Slesman's partner because they're like, well, mm-hmm. we think it's someone who protected him probably when he was in prison, blah, 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 blah. They go to the prison. This is also interspersed with Hotch like, lying to um, Slesman and like lowering the room temperature to make him more malleable, also legal for what we just talked about, and Slesman like telling them like where the boat was, which is also legal for the reasons that we talked about. But they're at the prison, they're looking around, they can't find anything. Garcia calls and says, well, his old cellmate died. And they're like, well, fuck, guess we'll leave. And as they leave, they're talking to the guard that's like escorting them around. And in the world's biggest coincidence, that he's like, yeah, I protected him. He needed all the help he could get. And he has, like, keys to the type of car that they think was used to kidnap the women from various hints throughout the episode. Yes, the Dotson. And, like, a few other things, yeah. And so they go outside, and they're, like, calling everybody else, and they're like, we think we fucking got him. This is it. This makes sense. And so that's when Hotch writes Tim Vogel on a bunch of boxes and, like, slides them across the table at Slussman and is like, we got your boy! Yeah. And so... Gideon and Elle then follow Vogel, like, in his car. But we found out it's not Vogel. It's actually Vogel, like, conned a co-worker into taking Vogel's car, and then Vogel is, like, in the co-worker's car off at the boat. So, Elle and Gideon do not know this, which, why they took eyes off of him, like, by the way, they know there's a woman in the boat somewhere that, like, they're, like, the suspect is trying to get to at that moment. So why they took their eyes off this dude... I do not know, let alone long enough for him to get to, like, a parking garage, talk to a co-worker, and, like, get out, but... I imagine at that point they had to leave, and then the parking lot is probably within the facility, so they couldn't just, like, loiter, I guess. But I guess any, any foreman or, like, sorry, warden of a prison would be like, yeah, police. Like, it's really weird, but essentially, so they follow this car, they pull it over for no re like, the reason that they pull it over is they're like, well, it's acting really legally. This isn't someone going to a crime, which is not a reason to pull someone over. Yeah, so to pull someone over, again, you don't need a, like, it's not technically an arrest, but you do need probable cause to pull someone over. They don't over. have that. Yeah, they don't have it. The fact that they don't know who is in the car is, like, a big glaring hole, but, like, reasonably you could argue, like, they thought it was him, whatever. But... There's no, they don't have any crime. They haven't connected him personally to any crime. Um, There's just like, there's no reason for them to pull him over at that second. But they do. They haul this poor dude out. He's freaking out. Yeah, they throw him on the ground. They're like, where's Phil? They're like, right, they're screaming at him. throw him on the floor. (laughs) Yeah. What's the make? What's the make? (laughs) This is where we get into why most of our rights are actually determined by criminal defendants, which is why you should care about criminal rights. And that is because you cannot sue a police... Mm -hmm. Um, episode of police misconduct outside of like just obscene brutality which is very difficult due to qualified immunity anyway just like an improper arrest or an improper pulling over you can't sue the cops for that unless you are in a criminal like jurisdiction like um criminal case so unless like he tries you for something you can't sue him yeah so unless you are being tried for a crime you can't say well they searched my house without a warrant because there's no civil penalty for that The penalty is you can't use that evidence in the court case. But if there's no court case, there's no penalty. So he could maybe sue, like, for badgering him or physically roughing him up or whatever. But he probably wouldn't have much of a case. And like I said, due to qualified immunity, which is a whole Mm -hmm. knot of other issues. There's a bunch of podcasts on it um, with real lawyers and everything. (laughs) Not the discount lawyer I picked up. Yeah, not the one um, who's going to be in debt for 10 million years and doesn't even have a degree yet. Um, Love that for you. Yes. So he would, so like, this is fine. This is whatever. And there's no evidence that like comes from it. All of that is coming from Hosh and Slesman. So this is just like a fun little veer into like, these people are unreliable, but it's not going to affect So they're very lucky. Yes. I think getting older watching this show is starting to agree more with Aaron Strauss and being like, no, you're right. These are like loose cannons. They're insane. Oh yeah. Also, they do question Slesman's grandmother at one point. 
and yeah. just like straight up lie to her. They're like, yeah, he's not a suspect. We think he's also nice. Blah 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 blah. And I'm guessing that's legal based on everything else that I've heard terrible about this episode. I was gonna say yes, also legal. Um, that's because the cops can lie to the defendant. They can also lie to someone who is secondary or tertiary, quote unquote, to a crime. Which means you're not involved, but you're somehow connected, like being the grandmother of one of the killers. So you're not connected, but you are his landlord. Yeah, so you're, so they can lie to her and like, it's whatever. Yeah, there's also entering the, oh yeah, they also tell, like, Hotch tells Slesman that they'll make him a deal. Um, and he lies and says they have Vogel in custody and that Vogel is like giving him up for everything. And he's like, Slussman, if you tell me what's going on, I will make you a deal. Uh-huh. And you can't do that. <laughs> cops can't do that. The DA can do that. And the DA and the cops can, like, work together and negotiate. But there will be an attorney, like, connected. There's, like, co- like cops can make a deal in the way that I can promise my brother I'll pay him back when he buys me lunch. Which is that I'm, like, it's just on vibes, right? They can say, well, I won't put you in my report. And, like, they could not. Like, you could have, like, a personal deal, but that's not going to be binding or anything. If you're making a deal about your sentence, mm-hmm. that is with the prosecutor. So, that's fake. You also sign shit for it. Um, always get a signature or whatever. And so, there's also, so there's where they go to the boat. Now, this is most likely public yeah. property for reasons that Lee will go into in a second because they know more about boat shit than I do. Yeah, so it's a it's a marina, which a marina is either privately owned by citizens that buy the land or it's publicly owned as a utility in Seattle, which is a heavy boating community because of its at location on the water. That's probably going to be a public works marina. Um a dock slip might be considered pri- private property just based on the fact that you would pay rent to it, so you own it, technically. So that might be a little bit in the weeds, but um, the the marina itself and the bridge especially, that, would prob- that might be public property. So they could probably be there. Yeah, and even if it was private, there's two exceptions they can use to get into it without a warrant. The first of which is in its emergency. Like, they have very good cause to believe... That a woman's gonna die. That a woman is about to be murdered. Which is an emergency, they can just go in. Um, It's the same doctrine as, like, if they think there's, like, a bomb somewhere. Like, they don't need, like, probable cause or anything. They can say, well, shit, there's a bomb, we gotta go in. Also, there's a doctrine of hot pursuit, which is, again, depends on your jurisdiction. But if you are chasing a suspect and they, like, run into a house... You don't have to stop and say, well, I don't have a warrant to search the house. You can just chase them into it. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't necessarily have line of sight. Like, if you lose line of sight, but you're chasing this person, um, and it's within, there's generally certain time frames, it's malleable, but, like, you're chasing someone, mm-hmm. you can just run in and grab them. So, yeah. this would be something that you could argue is hot pursuit, because they know where he is, they're chasing him down, Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's if it's private property, which, again, it may or may not be. And they don't wait for backup, but, you know, they're loose cannons. They gotta go. Yeah, who get, who needs backup? Uh, it's just a deadly situation. Okay, so that's about all the legal stuff. Um, even getting to the weeds of, like, pri- private versus public docs. Um, so there's one thing I do want to talk about before we wrap up. So this is a pilot episode. Um, and you can tell. Yes. Like, you can see the notes that people wrote down about this. Um, so, fun fact, I actually did work, um, and I'm under NDA here, so there's very there's not a lot I can say, but I can tell you that I worked for a company that would, uh, mm-hmm. they would, like, test audience, uh, like, episodes of TV shows and stuff like that, and, like, trailers for movies. So, I got to watch a couple of pilot episodes for shows that were not made. Um, but, so... I can see, like, what notes people wrote about this show. Like, get rid of all these damn quotes. Because um, there's about eight in the first episode and yeah. two, everyone going forward. They, I think they also said, like, hey, can Morgan be a little nicer? And can Hotch have a personality? Yeah, please. His personality is cop. And you know what? I love it for it's him. Co- it's cop first, Dilp second. <laughs> Yeah. Eventually it becomes Dill first. Yeah, no, it becomes Dill first very quickly. Uh, And then um, I can imagine people said, we would like more women, especially a blonde one, because Jennifer Drow is in the next episode. Yeah, like, I mean, like, when we were recording, like, when we first started recording, I was about to be like, yeah, Elsa, token woman. And then you mentioned, like, Garcia, and I was like, well, Garcia is kind of in this one. And then they just start sprinkling him in after that. (laughs) Yeah. 
Um, and then I can imagine they were like, can you get all these damn clothes off of Morgan? There's no point because he's in like a, a suit and tie in this first episode and very, very quickly goes down to yeah. like muscle tees, a Henley t-shirt and like, I don't think this show at all was meant to be watched consecutively because the camera quality in episode one versus episode two is astounding. Well, I was going to say this show was never meant to be watched consecutively. Like I have, this is, this might be unironically the first time I have sat down and like watched a season of Criminal Minds instead of just being like, you know what? I feel like the show where he like cuts out people's eyes or something. Meanwhile, I watch it consecutively when I watch it. So like, uh, like once a year I'll go through and watch the whole show in order. Yeah. I have watched seasons five and six in order because I like those seasons. Oh, yeah. No, my favorite seasons are probably two, five, and six. But, yeah, so to wrap this up on episode one, I, and, you know, we can't predict how a court case would go, but let's say, like, you're the defense attorney for Slesman, the only living suspect. <laughs> are you pleading out? I would, because you have the confession. I mean, also, so the attorney doesn't make the decision, right? We are technically working for the defendant. So whether or not Slesman chooses to plead that's a different question right but if i was giving him advice i'd be like listen dude they got you like on camera confessing to it it's valid we can they got a girl that is traumatized yeah who will nail your ass to the wall like you're pretty much fucked at that point it's all legal like we can fight it in court god knows we fought worse cases but like if you want my personal opinion if they are offering you life over a death trial i'll just take life i would suggest life uh, that will be a wrap on episode one. Uh, yeah, so thank you for listening to Work the Case episode one. We will see you next week.